Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brett Tomlinson. Is wildness over? That is the title and the central question of a new book by Paul Wapner, a 1991 Princeton PhD grad and professor at American University's School of International Service. He has written extensively about environmental politics, environmental thought, global environmental activism, and environmental ethics. And this new book, written for a general audience, distills many of the key concepts from these areas of study. Uh, Paul, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Before we dive into wildness, I I was hoping you could tell me and tell our listeners about your path from the politics, politics department at Princeton to your current focus on environmentalism. Sure. Uh, It's been a nice journey. Uh, I was a graduate student at Princeton. I did my PhD, as you said, in the politics department. And I was lucky enough to work with professors. Some uh, listeners may know I worked primarily with Richard Falk in the politics department, with Michael Doyle in the politics department, and with Michael Walzer, who was at the Institute of Advanced Studies. I wrote my dissertation on environmental activism specifically transnational environmental activism, that is Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, World Wildlife Fund, looking at the work of activists who tried to organize and take action across state boundaries. And that constituted my first book once I got a job at American University. And um, I've just gotten deeper and deeper into environmental issues since then. In back then, in 1991, I mean, there was, you know, mild interest in environmental issues in the politics department. In fact, a fourth reader was in the engineering school. Uh, but um, since then, it's obviously the environmental movement has grown, environmental scholarship has grown, and public interest has grown tremendously. So I am now actually in a department called Global Environmental Politics within the School of International Service at AU. Um, And as you said, I've written on quite a number of different issues, and um, I'm mainly interested in the question of how we're going to live through this portal of environmental intensification in a way that enhances human dignity and and, uh, forges a livable and flourishing future. And I'll just add one more thing. In the moment of COVID-19, I think that question is incredibly poignant. Your book taps into a number of areas from political science and economics to engineering to, you know, sociology. Um, And you observe that for the most affluent people on the planet, there's been sort of a long-standing effort to insulate one's life from wildness. The, the, the temperature in our homes doesn't change very much season to season. Our, our food supply seems secure. We, we don't worry about predators. We're, we're kind of sealed off from the, the discomfort and, and vulnerability of the natural world. And as you mentioned, that, that this book was, was written before the coronavirus pandemic, but um, this is a rare time when humanity is dealing with uh, uncontrollable factors that are kind of knocking our world off kilter. 
what do you think COVID-19 tells us about how we, as, as humans, respond to wildness? Well, um, boy, you jumped right in, huh? Yeah, I wrote the book before the virus. And actually, interestingly enough, one of my readers, I had references to pandemics as an example of wildness. And one reader said, oh, we're basically, let's take that out. It doesn't seem relevant. And I took the references out. And lo and behold, um, COVID is here and you know, rampant. Um, as you said, though, what we've been doing as, and mainly those of us who are affluent and part of the, um, what, the, the quote-unquote developed world, but, I, but there's lots of places that are developed all over the globe. Um, but for generations, we have been pushing uncertainty, um, not necessarily pushing risk out of our lives, but trying to circumscribe the areas where we engage with risk. And... So defining well-being as uh, predictability, certainty in many ways, um, stability, security, and so forth. And we've done an amazing job of creating a world and an experience in which we, uh, we have achieved uh, sort of a, a dewilding of our lives. I mean, if you think back to before, let's say, the agricultural revolution. I mean, human beings lived right next to and, and sort of in a wild, we, we lived permanently kind of outside. And um, over time, and the agricultural revolution had a lot to do with this, but we basically started to insulate ourselves and create an indoors or an inside that was in contrast to the outside. And the outside came to represent this threatening, dangerous, um, at least uncomfortable situation where we had to deal with cold and excessive heat and finding food and so forth. And over the centuries, we have mastered in many ways, and I say we, mainly the affluent, but, um, but increasingly many, many people across the world mastered an ability to be insulated from a lot of the vicissitudes of nature and the kind of unwieldiness of even human affairs. Um, and uh, But COVID is sort of like reminding us that those efforts uh, have limitations, that there is a part of the world and there is a part of human experience which is fundamentally unpredictable. And while we continue to control the world and put our imprint on more and more aspects of the globe and human experience, that there is this almost inherent quality that keeps escaping our mastery and our controlling grip. And, um, and the pandemic now is, uh, it's a scramble between how quickly we can kind of try to control this um, and how quickly we can try to adapt our lives to it. Um, Maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but one of the main points of the book is to argue that the battle against wildness is misconceived, that I, I, I argue that we should develop a different relationship to unpredictability and even danger and open ourselves up to more um, uncertainty, open ourselves up to more in unpredictability because life just has that character to it. And stop bracing against this. But COVID uh, reminds me as well that 
that's part of the game. But right now, like many people, I'm gunning for a vaccine and I'm gunning for some control over this. So I think it's a complicated relationship we develop with discomfort, with unpredictability and so forth. And so COVID is, um, is testing that in a real way. Looking at um, the efforts that we've made, as as you say, it's not it's not everyone, but it is a large portion of uh, humanity. Uh, the things that we've done to seal ourselves off from threats, uh, you know, largely fueled by fossil fuels, uh, you know, controlling our our in, inside climates and and the way that we move about in the world. Uh, these paradoxically, as you write, uh, increase wildness in, in a global sense, the, the threat of climate change in particular. Um, can you explain a bit of, about the history of this trend and, and, and uh, you know, while it's very visible in the 21st century, it goes back much farther, I gather. Right. No, the cl climate change is, is, is a perfect example of this dynamic that the book tries to express, which is that um, we turn to fossil fuels in part to master the world around us. Uh, in the book, I discuss how um, in Versailles, uh, you know, in the, in the 18th century, um, uh, people wore coats and, 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 and there was, you couldn't get warm there. Um, and uh, likewise, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, wrote uh, his inkwell used to freeze in the winter and so forth. And so life used to be pretty uncomfortable before fossil fuels. And fossil fuels were like the kind of godsend in the sense that they allowed us to heat our homes. They allowed, and by heating our homes, we could have indoor plumbing. So they created the possibility of public hygiene. Um, we could cook foods with fossil fuels, uh, light our homes, and so forth. And so that, it was like an amazing tool to, to control the world around us. And, um, and two things resulted from that. Um, as we pushed wildness and unpredictability out of our immediate lives because of this power that fossil fuels gave us, well, we didn't get rid of wildness. We did two things. One is and what most of the book's about is that we catapulted it up to the global level. Right now, as I'm sitting in my home here, uh, I'm comfortable, uh, I have lights, uh, I do have an ability to heat the house and so forth if need be. Uh, there's windows and so forth. Um, I'm sitting on a chair that was manufactured, which fossil fuels made possible. The concrete of my house was made possible by fossil fuels and so forth. And so I've gotten, I've bought a lot of comfort and a lot of security, but at a cost that that wildness and that unpredictability has now, again, catapulted up to the global level. So now we have global spasm in the form of climate change. And, um, and I, I argue in the book that that wasn't an accident. In fact, in some cosmic irony, it was a direct consequence of this push to have immediate comfort. I said there's two things we do there. So on the one hand, it goes up to the global level, but on the other hand, that wildness 
we displace it out of our own lives and it, it doesn't just move vertically up, but it also moves horizontally out so that we also put the burden of our comfort or the, of the cost of our comfort onto the lives of those who are less fortunate. And what I mean by that is that you know, there's people right now who are you know, on oil rigs and who are engaged in fracking and who live around mining areas and so forth, and they're paying the price with more dangerous lives, more um, wildness, really, in, in terms of their own vulnerability. Um, and they're paying that price for us. Likewise, not just the mining of fossil fuels does that in the excavation and the extraction, but the experience of climate change also is affecting the most vulnerable disproportionately to those of us who mostly caused the problem. And again, what I argue in the book is that's a displacement of wildness from the affluent to the uh, marginalized. And it's to suggest that wildness is like energy. It doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. But when you squeeze it in one way, it has to go somewhere. And it goes, again, up to the global level, vertically and horizontally out into the lives of those who cannot afford to dodge this bullet, um, which many of us can. Final thing, and I know I'm talking a lot, but let me just add one more piece to this, which is just that, and COVID's a great example of, of, of how this is also changing, is that those of us who have um, benefited from the luxury of fossil fuels, say, and other things that have pushed wildness out of our lives, that that's increasingly changing. And I think we see this in climate change. It's coming home even to haunt the affluent. And, um, and that's, a, that's a fundamental shift in the way that global wildness has expressed itself. One of the potential answers to global wildness is sort of doubling down on science, uh, everything from geoengineering to, to genetics, uh, the, the idea that big global challenges can be addressed with big global scientific interventions. Why, uh, why do you see that as, as problematic and, and what are some of the sort of potential unforeseen uh, risks of, of uh, taking that approach? Yes, yeah, so actually um, it's, it's not surprising that in the face of global, so when we asked ourselves, what do we do about local wildness, wildness in our individual lives, we came up with all these tools, fossil fuels being among them, to, to, to sort of control that and, um, and manage it and so forth. And so we've been doing that for so long that I'm not surprised that now that we're faced with global wildness, which I would add, by the way, not just climate change, but loss of biological diversity, and other environmental issues which show a world sort of out of control, that the impulse almost in the DNA of our species is, okay, now how do we control that? And how can we extend our mastering power over the globe itself? And so geoengineering, which is one response to climate change, uh, is an attempt not to ask us to change our behavior and to reduce our consumption and so forth. Rather, it's saying, let's, for example, shoot sulfates into the atmosphere 
to block the sun to cool the planet. And we know we can do this technologically. It's possible. It's actually quite cheap. And there is a, an important move in this direction. And in fact, many analysts think that we will not be able to get a handle on um, accelerating temperatures unless we do something like this. And that's, there's a number of other schemes as well, including pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and so forth. But to me, this is this addiction to this technological fix that to every discomfort, to every challenge, we're going to just muster up our human ingenuity and technical wizardry and impose it on other people and, in this case, the globe itself. And so my discomfort with that is simply that that's using the same impulse that created the problem in the first place. Climate change came from this overcommitment to comfort at all costs. So now geoengineering and with regard to loss of biological diversity, there's something called de-extinction, which people are suggesting, well, we don't really have to worry about species going extinct because we can synthesize DNA from extinct species and kind of cook them up and reintroduce them into the system. And it's like, I listen to that stuff and I go, whoa, like that's just, that's just human ingenuity on steroids when there's more sensitive, less dramatic and less higher stakes in us altering our behavior by inviting in a little more, I mean, um, cutting back on our consumption of fossil fuels would ask us to make our lives a little more uncomfortable. We'd have to walk a little more, take bikes, uh, ride bikes, go on public transport, have to interact with other people, God forbid. And, um, and the, to me, that um, opening up to a little more uncertainty of the world is, um, to me, a wiser and more humane way to address these problems um, uh, than to simply try to take the planet and put it under our thumbprint and so forth. Um, we live now in what is known as the Anthropocene, this time where human beings, we are an ecological force in our own right, our signature is everywhere, and it seems like with global wildness in terms of climate change, loss of biological diversity and so forth, now we want to take the Anthropocene and simply um, drive our fingers and our technique deeper and deeper into the world and into the lives of other people. And I feel like that there's a, there's a different way to go. I wonder how much your, your background in political science comes into this, because it seems like if people do make individual changes and, and kind of welcome in inconvenience and unpredictability, that that may in turn help build the political will to, to make changes in, in policy and, and uh, cut carbon emissions or something like that. Do, do you think that that is, uh, is part of why you, you advocate for that path? For sure, um, for sure, um, but I don't see it so linearly that necessarily we begin with individual behavior and it spans out to collective behavior. The book argues actually for rewilding our lives, 
instead of keep dewilding them and throwing out uncertainty and so forth, we can rewild them. But rewilding is not simply a, an individual act, but collectivities can do it as well. And I see in this age of environmental intensification that we have to work obviously both at individual level and at the collective level. But rewilding at the collective level talks about or involves making a commitment to mass transit, for example. Um, it makes a commitment to a um, transition to a clean energy economy with infrastructure there. Um, and the difference is, though, that this infrastructure isn't infrastructure that can be um, monopolized by a single power uh, or corporate entity, but like solar, wind, and so forth, I mean, this stuff is, its first of all, it's free, um, but it's also inviting us into energy systems which may not have the same kind of stability and reliability and so forth, but that's a kind of, again, a, a kind of a journey into the unknown and into more unpredictability, uh, but with the reward of take, uh, having like a relief valve on the pressure that, that's being exerted on the planet as a whole and on other people. It's not simply individual action will create the political will for um, governments to make a difference, to, to change their energy strategies and so forth, but to inculcate this notion of rewilding our lives, even at the collective level, um, I mean, we see this a little bit in the um, uh, the, uh, the the New Green Deal. How, how has rewilding uh, been part of your life? What 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 sorts of things do you uh, hope to incorporate, or have you incorporated in your own life uh, as a result of of studying this this idea? Well, that's a brilliant question and a scary question <laughs> because I always feel like I write books that I need to read. And in this case, it's very much true. Um, I, I, I write books also to work out what I need to kind of figure out in my own life. And I feel like uh, for all my enthusiasm for rewilding when it comes to my individual life, I'm increasingly noticing how I do lean toward comfort and I lean toward easiness and so forth. And so I have really, um, in terms of this book, um, it's, it's reminded me to commit myself to not taking the easy route toward everything. Uh, I'm, I'm on sabbatical from American University right now. I'm living in Taos, New Mexico. And uh, with my wife, we're actually trying to resuscitate some of the land around us. We're bringing back native plants, and we are um, bringing the land back to health. We, we're living in a place where the land was degraded for a long time. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of uncertainty. We're learning our way into it. Um, uh, and it's a beautiful experience. And it's forcing me to go beyond sitting in a study and just writing and actually getting my hands dirty and so forth. We live with rattlesnakes here, we live with coyote, we live with some bear, and watching my own fears emerge and sort of work on them is 
is part of what I see in my own rewilding curriculum. But I don't want to pretend that I am Davy Crockett out here or that I am John Muir. Um, I still am sort of drunk with um, civilizational comforts. And um, uh, there's a little bit of hypocrisy in all our lives. And rubbing up against that, though, has been really meaningful to me. And I think, and I say this in the book, too, I think rewilding as a route toward addressing global problems is not simply an instrumental activity, but I think it can, and my experience has been, that I think it can make us better people in terms of how we comport ourselves toward each other um, and toward the land more generally. I think rewilding offers many people a meaningful and effective way to live at this moment of environmental um, experience. Gosh, I, I feel like I'm preaching, and I apologize <laughs> for that. Well, I, I think it sounds like uh, the work you're doing could, could lend itself to another book someday, uh, the, the personal experience of rewilding. Mm. Um, mm. Do, do you uh, see elements in the, the kind of COVID quarantine life that, that many folks across the world are are going through uh, that could could also contribute to this, uh, you know, a chance to uh, reconnect with wildness and, and, and maybe make some, some lasting changes. I think that's really, that's again, another really interesting question. Well, the COVID crisis is, is a crisis. I mean, that sense of having that character of both danger and opportunity. And I don't want to belittle the dangers because I know that I'm living in a privileged position right now. Um, I can use this time to explore parts of my life that I haven't been able to, but I know that for many people um, who are, you know, uh, on the edges of paycheck to paycheck or, you know, uh, as some people we know on the phone are living with their kids at home and so forth. And there's just sort of lots of, challenges there. I don't want to suggest that this is, we should look at this just as an opportunity, but I do think, and this speaks to your question, that this crisis is offering us a chance to kind of wheel down our lives. I remember Throw in Walden saying that, you know, he wants, um, how did he put it? He wants to get to the marrow of life and he wants to kind of let go of the excesses that sort of take him away from um, what's most real. I feel like this crisis is calling on us to identify and value that which is most meaningful to us. And so I find myself reaching out to people who I might not have been in touch with a while, but who I really care about and doing the kinds of things that I think are most valuable and recognizing the many things I was doing that I thought were sort of essential, but actually in hindsight and with a new perspective, they were... Um, you know, conveniences and fun, but not necessarily getting to the heart of what I think life's about. So I think that's an opportunity. But the other thing I want to say is it's amazing. The world has shut down in like a month. And that suggests that there is potential to address some of these global wilding problems in a very effective way if we can 
maintain the political will. I mean, to throw a few trillion dollars uh, at the economy to address this crisis with climate change, that would be partly a game changer. And um, the idea isn't we should shut down in regard to these problems, but it does suggest a collective capacity to coordinate and direct our action like never before and on a global level. So to me, that's also an opportunity that as we awaken from this crisis, um, I really, my hope is we don't get back to normal because normal was a time of intense injustice and intense global environmental degradation, but that we actually go through this time and come out the other side and redefine what normal is and redefine what living together cognizant of our um, impact on the globe and on others and find another way. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks so much, Brad. I really enjoyed it and I appreciate all that you were doing with these podcasts and with Princeton Alumni Weekly in general. Paul Wapner's book, Is Wildness Over?, was released earlier this month by Polity Press. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And for a transcript of this episode, visit our website, paw.princeton.edu. That's paw.princeton.edu.